Carnival in Venice is legendary. Participation in the festival's rituals used to be mandatory. In Venice, by law, Venetians had to wear a special costume and masks all year round, not just a carnival. Coming up, we'll look at what the sin city of Europe was really like in the 18th century world of Casanova. After three tough pandemic years, how are businesses in China likely to recover? Zach Dykwald of the Young China Group suggests watching for some creative global partnerships. Mexico and China, instead of being competitors, they're collaborators. Zach reports in from Mexico City on the models he's finding for economic growth in the years ahead. People in China have a lot in common with people in Mexico in terms of what they need, how they use technology, how they access the internet, how they access credit, how they access debt. They have a lot in common with people in Indonesia, throughout Southeast Asia, throughout India. It's all coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. A young American who consults businesses on what the millennial generation in China wants is finding that Mexico is poised to play a larger role in the trade relationship between global powers. Zach Dykwall tells us why he's in Mexico City on his way to China. And he'll update us on the pandemic's impacts on Chinese society in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. 300 years ago, Venice was a required stop on the Grand Tour. For young European gentlemen of means, it was a place to enjoy part of their coming of age. Historian Lawrence Bergreen looks at the pleasure capital of Europe through the eyes of one of its best-known authors and adventurers, Giacomo Casanova. His book is Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. Lawrence, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So Casanova, I mean, he's just synonymous for a great lover and a great seducer. But he's more than that. I mean, he's an incredible personality, and and thankfully he left a massive memoir for us to learn. Yes. Give us a little thumbnail about why he is such an exceptional personality. Well, in addition to all his exploits, for which he's so well known, and which he writes about in great detail, he wrote, uh, published about 150 books and pamphlets during his lifetime, 12 volumes of memoirs, plays, a three-volume science fiction novel, political journalism, all sorts of polemics, a translation of the Iliad into Hmm. Italian from Greek. So he had a huge literary output. In addition to that, he was a mathematical genius, which was part of his success as a gambler. He was a professional gambler. Oh, he was a gambler. So it takes a lot of money to have a hundred mistresses. Yes, yes. Did he get most of that money from gambling? That was how he got almost all his money. And he understood the laws of probability, which was an emerging mathematical concept in his lifetime in the 18th century. And he actually managed to, when he escaped to Paris, convince the French crown to institute a lottery because they badly needed money. Using Casanova's system, which was based on a lottery in Genoa, they instituted a very successful lottery, raised money quickly. Casanova got a share of the ticket offices Hmm. around Paris and very quickly became wealthy, although he blew it on all sorts of ridiculous business adventures. But that would have empowered France, which eventually uh, overthrew the Venetian Republic, right? Yes, it's a funny story. <laughs> it's kind Part of, comes of that around. money was used to finance the École Militaire, the French Military Academy in Paris. One of the first students to go there was a young Corsican named Napoleon Bonaparte. Ten years after he graduated, when he was still in his late 20s, he conquered Venice. By that time, Casanova had fled the city, and that was the end of a thousand years of the Venetian Empire. Okay, but that was the last nail in the coffin of the Venetian Republic because it was already in decline. And Napoleon didn't like Venice. He didn't like Venetians. He sent Josephine in his stead to go visit. He didn't even want to see it. 
But um, at that point, Venice, which had been in decline for a long time, fell easily, and uh, that was the end of it. However, the Venetian mystique endures to this day. Oh, yeah. Now, when you think of Venice, it's hard to underestimate what a power it was for centuries. I mean, a thousand years ago, it was the economic superpower in Europe. Its dollar was the dollar. And then it slowly, well, part of the problem was, uh, in fact, you wrote a book, I think, about Marco Polo and uh, all the trade that Venice got from the East. But when we have Vasco da Gama and Magellan and Columbus, you know, around the year 1500, all of a sudden the trade's gone and, and Venice is just sitting on its laurels. And over time, it just becomes a city of decadence in decline. It's sort yeah. of a time warp. And talk about Venice in the 18th century. It really was sort of the sin city of Europe back then. What what happens in Venice stays in Venice, right? <laughs> Yes, it just became more and more ossified. It seemed caught in the Middle Ages, even as the rest of European history went on, and uh, it lost its colonies, it lost its economic prowess. It was still controlled by the same 400 families who were written down in the Golden Book, the so-called Libra d'Oro. And uh, this was a very, very tightly knit case which concentrated power, but also strangled Venice. You know, it was so conservative, they had to have an outlet, and maybe that's why Carnival, it's just synonymous with Venice. It is synonymous. Of course, there's Carnival in many other countries. But interestingly enough, we think of Carnival and the masks in Venice, particularly only at Carnival time. However, in Venice, by law, Venetians had to wear a special costume and masks all year round, not just at Carnival. And not only outdoors, but indoors. And they were not allowed to speak to foreigners. Contact or conversations with foreigners were, by law, outlawed. Is so that it was right? a very introverted culture in Casanova's day. And you even write in your book that there were some masks that were designed for women not to talk to anybody at all. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. The woman's mask was a circular black one called a moretta. It had a button in the middle, and a woman held it between her teeth. And, of course, that way she couldn't talk. The man's mask was a rigid white one called a bauta, which was sort of scary. That's what Casanova and everybody else was wearing. This also made it possible for a lot of murder and mayhem to take place in the streets and back alleys of Venice, especially at night, and seductions when there were all these balls. And you can see pictures from Casanova's day Everybody's there in their masks, um, in a ball, uh, you know, indoors. It's not carnival, wearing the Venetian costume, which was a three-cornered hat and a mantle and kind of a puffy (laughs) uh, shirt or blouse. So Venetians had a very distinctive dress. It was a very, very particular part of Italy and Europe. So it sounds like these were repressed people, like oversexed Jackson boxes that were just ready to spring <laughs> open at the first excuse, the first little <laughs> private time on a gondola, and bam. Yeah, yeah the gondolas then in Venice were different. They looked more or less like they do now. However, they had enclosed cabins, so they became venues for seduction. So if you were with a woman on a gondola, you would close the windows, and uh, you could proceed aboard a gondola, which in fact, Casanova did. Also, convents in Venice were often venues for seduction. Convents? Convents in Venice, many of them were actually harems. And the women were sent there not because they were pursuing religious vocations, but because their wealthy families, especially the 400 families who controlled Venice, wanted to make sure they didn't get married and dilute the family fortune and dilute the family bloodlines. What happened is they were kept there literally behind bars, but they would receive visitors 
Casanova and many others, and especially tourists across Europe and England hmm. who would come bearing gifts and court them. And every so often they would have orgies there behind bars or they would escape for a few hours and go to a small casino or some other building for an assignation and then creep back to their convent. An orgy at the convent. Why not? <laughs> Casanova <laughs> writes about this. I was skeptical. I thought, well, this must be his superactive imagination. But I came across many other accounts of these really scandalous goings-on at Venice. Lawrence, I've time. seen paintings of these convents with all of these women that look like they're in a bordello. And it's yes, uh, in the um, Carrizonico. Don't miss the Carrizonico. It's the Museum of 18th Century Venice, and it, it yes. shows all of this stuff right out of the age of Casanova. Historian Lawrence Burgreen's biographies of Columbus, Magellan, and Marco Polo, as well as Louis Armstrong and Irving Berlin, have been translated into more than two dozen languages. His latest book, In Search of a Kingdom, explores the exploits of what he calls the Queen's favorite pirate, a temperamental redhead we know from our history books as Sir Francis Drake. Right now on Travel with Rick Steves, Lawrence is telling us about the life of Giacomo Casanova, who charmed everyone from young girls to old popes in 18th century Venice. When we're in Venice, we have this uh, history all around us, and there were these 400 families and all of these aristocrats who really were above the normal rules and these libertines, which was the, yes. the hedonist of the day that wanted to almost be promiscuous as a declaration of independence from conservative mores. I've had guides take me to these kind of like aristocratic man caves. They called them casinos. Uh, the word casino yes. comes from these little hideaways for aristocrats. Talk about the life of these aristocrats, and they would have a maybe a palace on the mainland and a little hideaway in Venice. Since Venice was so tiny, many of the aristocrats did have a mansion or a very large house on the mainland, and they went back and forth, especially around Padua. And they had their mistresses. Uh, they gambled incessantly. Casanova wasn't the only one. The main gambling area was called the Redato, which was highly popular and served as a magnet for tourists across Europe. Of course, there were the famous cafes of Venice, which also attracted a lot of tourists and had a very, very active street life and cafe life. You know, and when we're on the main square in the Piazza San Marco, you've got several of these elegant old-world cafes, and Florian's is most famous, I believe, and they, yes. they're the, with the famous dueling orchestras, and most of the tourists sit outside to enjoy the outdoor orchestras, but I really like going inside and sitting in some of these cozy little uh, cafe rooms. And they look more or less as they did in Casanova's time. Now, it's interesting. He writes about how lively the scene was as a young person, and then he also writes how empty and deserted and sad they became after Napoleon conquered Venice when Casanova was much older and he went back briefly to visit and all the street life had uh, gone out of it. So Venice underwent a dramatic change in his lifetime. Venice was also a city of a lot of music. Oddly enough, Casanova disliked music, but this was the city of Vivaldi, the Red Priest as he was known, and many other composers. Music was in the air. It was the city of Commedia dell'arte, especially Galdoni, who wrote many plays that his mother, the famous actress, acted in. So there was a lot of cultural life in Venice as well. It wasn't just decadence. Lawrence, let's just talk about, as a visitor to Venice, if we want to just imagine the allure of the place, the, the romance of the place in the 1700s. Take us to a little spot in Venice that inspires you to go back and, and feel the moment of Casanova's time. Well, I would say anywhere along the Grand Canal, but it's not so much a place in my own mind as Venice, but it's a time of year. I was once there 
at November, and it was cold, and it got dark early, and it was foggy, and it was damp. The tourists were gone. And I remember being there and walking around the streets of Venice at night when there were just a few cats running around and shadows around the corner and you didn't know what you'd see if you walked down an alley. That's another side of Venice, which I thought was very haunting and very moody. And I've never forgotten it. I just, uh, when I think of Venice, I actually think of this moody, nighttime, foggy Venice, uh, very noir Venice, if you will. Lawrence Bergreen, fascinating book, Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Biographer Lawrence Bergreen is the author of Casanova, The World of a Seductive Genius. You'll find a link to his website with this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. We'll look at how people celebrate Carnival just across the water from Venice in the Balkans and in the Basque Country of Spain and France. That's on next week's Travel with Rick Steves. In a minute, we get an updated view of China as it grapples with its pandemic policies and global challenges for the year ahead. Zach Dykwald of the Young China Group is in Mexico City, of all places, before he gets back to China for the first time since the pandemic started. He explains what he sees looming on the economic horizon for China and the world. Next. If the world has two superpowers, it's the U.S. and China. We know the choppy waters America is navigating, but China has its challenges, too. Many in its wealthy business class are leaving. They're just frustrated with the authoritarian government and they're setting up shop in other countries. China's population is actually dropping as it ages, a natural consequence of economic success that they've had in the recent past. This will almost certainly bring an economic slowdown. Its COVID policy is turning out to be what seems like a total mess, reflecting badly on the competence of the government, uh, and it's a government that needs to protect its image. And the country has experienced public demonstrations lately as a result. Zach Dykwald has been spending years in China studying its youth scene, and he joins us today to share his take on the recent challenges in China. Zach, thanks for being with us. Thanks so much for having me, Rick. Always a pleasure. Now, it, it seems that there's a lot to catch up on in regards to China. But before we do, uh, let's catch up with you. Uh, first of all, remind us of your work with the Young China Group in the book you've written. Yeah, gosh, the first time I, I got to join you and your wonderful audience... I think Young China had just come out. I had a book written about, um, the subtitle is How the Restless Generation Will Change Their Country and the World, really focusing on the emerging identity of young people throughout the country, focusing particularly on second and third tier cities. So trying to get out of the Shanghais and the Beijings and, and talk to real people. And the basis for this, and later my organization, the Young China Group, is trying to bring a people first perspective of China to the world for a better world. And the reason is pretty simple. You know, when we talk about China, you know, even, of course, in the news especially, and even your headline reflected this a little bit, we talk about two different versions. First is a big government, which is scary, right? And second is a big economy, which is either exciting or scary, depending on the day. And so the people-first approach uh, is one that's far more accessible, understandable, and empathetic and it's one that I, I've been trying to advocate for, really, for the last six, seven, eight years now. Wow. And when you talk about um, focusing on second-tier cities, in the United States, that would be maybe 300,000 or half a million people. In China, a second-tier city is how big? 
So I lived in a, a sleepy little city called Chengdu that had an 8 million person population, depending on how you counted. One of the yeah. best sort of cocktail party lines I have is, is New York is the smallest city I've lived in in the last decade. Uh, and, you know, living in China, it's the land of big numbers. Well, you know, a billion people is a thousand million. And uh, that's a lot of big cities. A lot of big cities. Hey, something's going on in your personal life also. I understand um, you just got married uh, to a, a, a wonderful, apparently, partner who is Chinese. That's right. And it's a, it's a zany story. Um, so I got married six months ago. But we met in March of 2020. Taking it back even two months before that, in January of 2020, I packed for a two-week trip from Beijing to the U.S. to, to speak at a couple of conferences. And on January 24th, I had a ticket back to Wuhan, China. My book was coming out in China. I was filming something with Tencent, which is one of the largest tech and media companies there. I got messages from my friends in Wuhan at the beginning of January saying, hey, you know, maybe push back your flight. I did, and ultimately ended up in New York come March. Now I go on a date on March 11th, which was just about the last day you were allowed to date in New York City. And uh, by March 13th, we had moved in together, preparing to quarantine with one another because we'd both seen, so she's from Qingdao, China, a beautiful city on the coast. Uh, we'd both seen what had happened in China. We knew it would be bad, probably worse than what people were talking about in the States. And so over the next few months, from not knowing one another, we then started to spend every single waking moment together. At the beginning of what has been a, a wonderful and in many ways charmed relationship and now marriage. What a decision. You felt the rising tide of a pandemic before other people did. Uh, because you were heading back to the the epicenter of that, and and you had to make a quick decision with, <laughs> with your wife, and it worked out great. So you could call that a corona bonus. Definitely a corona bonus. It's love in the time of corona. Uh, we've been through it. You know, we've we've constantly been thinking we were going back to China, and we've thought that just about every month for the last twenty four months. We had a major medical crisis in Mexico. Actually, my fiance at the time almost passed. Fortunately, she did not. She's made a full. Tremendous recovery. And, um, you know, it's a lot of ups and downs. And uh, as I know, a lot of people around the world and the country have, have felt. And now we are finally planning after a full three years since I've left to, to get back to China and, uh, among other things, meet my in-laws. Zach Dykewald created the Young China Group to help Western interests better understand China and the expectations of its younger generation. Zach provides his clients with a China Preparedness Index to clear up misperceptions before doing business in China. He's joining us right now from Mexico City. You'll find links to his work with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Your whole work is helping people better understand the people and the business environment and the culture of China, and that is, is so constructive lately, and I'm so tuned into the fact that like most Americans, what I know about China is basically what I see in the news, and you've got a much more intimate connection. And what do you think the average American doesn't appreciate about China that they should? I think first, and, and this has been foremost in people's minds, especially the last nine months, first is the average person in China does not feel the presence of their government at every waking moment. Uh, and, th and this is something that's really hard to square. I think when people imagine me arriving in China, they sort of imagine I get dispatched a, a sort of big brother-like uh, official who then sort of follows me around, around 100 meters behind me. And, and that's sort of my life as, as the months unfold. 
you know, before nine months ago, the, the saying I use most often to help people understand the relationship between people and government is um, it, it roughly translates to the hills are high and the emperor is far away. For the most part, the government is not an active part of people's daily lives. The major exception, of course, has been certainly these last nine months since the Shanghai lockdowns, uh, but even the last three years since, since COVID began, it's been a far more present relationship with the government than, than has existed for my, you know, I've been in and around China for, for almost 15 years now. So that's a big shift. Maybe that's um, an interesting byproduct of COVID is the government is more in people's lives than in the past. I would think there's sort of a maybe an unwritten arrangement that as long as we have stability and the freedom to be materialistic and have, you know, some kind of a happy life and a material capitalistic kind of way to, you know, enjoy life, people will let the government be authoritarian. But um, that can only go so far. So this is what I think of as the bargain. And, and this is the question that I get asked probably the most is, is what is the state of the bargain between the people and the government? There you the perceived go. bargain is will provide progress, uh, opportunity, jobs, upward mobility, and you, the people, will provide obedience. Now, I don't think that's as direct a relationship, uh, a causal relationship, as, as it's often portrayed. Again, I think people far underestimate the pride that especially young people feel in what their country and government has accomplished. And in China, there's the ability to separate country and government, right. people and government. So when people think of China's progress uh, over the last 30 years, you know, crazy number for you, um, in the last 33 years, so since 1990, so 30, 32, 33 years, China's per capita GDP has increased 33 times, uh, an incredible number. In the United States, that number is around 3.1. And so China is quite unique in this. When you look around the world, yeah. like India, it's 6x over the last 33 years. Brazil, 3.2. Germany, 1.9, I believe. And so when, when we're imagining that from the outside, we typically think about government, right? But in China, my friends there have watched their villages turn into towns, turn into cities. They've watched an uncle be excited about wheeling a, you know, a, a bicycle home as a sign of wealth in the early 1990s to having a two-car garage. It's a much more personal shift that's not government-related with, of course, some government interaction, support, and encouragement. Zach Dykewald is joining us from his home studio in a lively neighborhood of Mexico City right now on Travel with Rick Steves, before returning to a reopened post-pandemic China. Zach explains how watching the World Cup on TV led to massive street protests across China. That's in a website extra at ricksteves.com radio. You wrote in your newsletter, I think, how um, an American would be impressed by the infrastructure in China. We might think of it as a developing nation, but that's old news. The infrastructure would blow you away when you go to the cities, even those second-tier cities of only six or eight million people. The, the infrastructure is, is quite uh, jaw-dropping. So between 2011 and 2013, China poured more concrete than the United States did in the entire 20th century. Now, I don't want to make this all about infrastructure, and, and I especially don't want this to be a U.S.-China, which is better. Yeah. I think there's a lot of – that's a nuanced conversation. What I will say is the way that the, the speed at which the country changes is mm -hmm. unbelievable. The last three years have been a unique period in the last 33. Oh, uh, yeah. 
And then also the technology, by the way. So like, not only is it just buildings, you know, you can see the Shanghai skyline from 1990 to 2020, and it's a really astonishing shift, but also the technology, you know, people's willingness to be a mobile first nation. When, when a lot of brands and organizations and tech organizations around the world are thinking, okay, which is the most mobile first country that we need to model ourselves after, it's China now. And that's right. really been the case since around 2015. Well, 2022 has been a tough year. It was a tough year, and 2023 is looking like a tougher year. Does that have something to do with the fact that, what, 700 million people in China are under 40 years of age and and they're restless? So the last year has been brutal, and there's no other way to describe it. Really beginning with those Shanghai lockdowns, which about nine months, 10 months ago in, in the realm of that. And time, by the way, has been moving in crazy ways. feels like once every two weeks, there's another, you know, it's like, what's the crisis du jour that we're, that we're trying to navigate? But there, there's been a pretty difficult sentiment shift over the last nine months. And I will say we are at, we, we've passed the nadir and are on an upswing now. So it's actually a good time to talk about this. Mm. Um, but there was this feeling within China that the opportunities were shrinking. The glimmers of hope at the end of the COVID tunnel were diminishing. And that the on-again, off-again economy of COVID China, which is where you don't know, you know, if you run a business, you don't know if you're going to be open four weeks of the month, three weeks of the month, two weeks of the month. You don't know if you're going to have foot traffic like you normally do because of COVID lockdowns. You don't know if you're going to be able to hire people at the rates that you normally do because you can't predict your revenue and you don't know how often people are going to show up to work. Uh, over time, the exhaustion and the fatigue that comes from that uh, really impacted people's spirits. And so when we saw those protests, which of course were you know, ostensibly the result or in reaction to a, a major fire and, and some tragic deaths in Xinjiang uh, as related to COVID lockdowns, they really were much more than that. They, they were a venting of pent-up frustration. And this is where nuance is important, not necessarily against bad government, which is how it was often portrayed, but certainly massive amounts of anger against bad policy that had, had led people to a severely restricted life. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Zach Dykwald, and he's the founder and head of the Young China Group, and he's the author of a book called Young China how the restless generation will change their country and the world. He's updating us with his observations of China this year and what he expects to find as he returns to live in China shortly. Zach's website is youngchinagroup.com. Zach, there's some interesting demographic and people movement kind of action going on now. I was reading about how the wealthy class, the business class, has had it with the unpredictable dimension of their authoritarian government, and many are moving away and setting up shop in places like Singapore. And then I've also heard that the natural consequence of all their success is people become more affluent and better educated, and anywhere on the planet when that happens, people live longer and they have fewer children. Consequently, China looks now to a near future where they'll have fewer workers and more pensioners, and um, this is uh, both of these factors, uh, business leaders leaving the country and an aging uh, population, it's going to have a consequence on their stability and on their economic well-being and growth going forward. What's your take on that? Well, demographers love to say demography is destiny. And China has really been a beneficiary of that. Um, you can really tell the story of China's growth post-1980s 
as a story of demography. Rick, do you have any guesses for what the population in China in 1950 was? So 1950, midway through the 20th century. Today, the population is 1.4 billion. 1950, what's your guess? 300 million. 300 million is actually a great guess. Uh, most people guess about 1 billion uh, or 1.2 or something like that. The answer was 540 million. Now, this is also baby boomer territory, right? So between 1950 and 1980, China's population increased by 440 million people. So they've got a baby boomer generation, which is later than ours and bigger than ours. It's longer than ours. It's later by about four years because uh, between 1945, when World War II ended, and 1949, there was a civil war uh, between uh-huh. the nationalists and, of course, Mao's, Mao's communists. Right. And uh, Mao won. And as he did, people started to settle down and shack up. And it led to incredible birth rates. So between five and six kids per family. And Mao, while he did a tremendous amount of things wrong, one of the things that people benefited from was was significantly decreased infant mortality. So Mm -hmm. more people were living, more people were staying alive. And so China has the biggest baby boom in the world, followed by the world's largest baby bust, beginning with the one-child policy around 1980. And so if demography is destiny, China has been tampering with its own fate. Because they've exaggerated it with these two factors. I mean, really fast and then really slow. Absolutely. So if you imagine a demographic pyramid, in 1950 all the way through 1980, you have a lot of young people, so so broad on the base, and very few old people. In 1950, the average life expectancy in China was 40. Uh-huh. So you weren't retiring and taking a cruise, you, you'd die. And also, China was incredibly poor at the time. So this is why baby boomers don't register in China, uh, because some different than baby boomers in the United States, who impacted the economy at every single life stage, uh, in China, they didn't have that spending capability. But in 1980, 1990, when China had its reform and opening policy, basically beckoning in the manufacturing era of China, all of those young people were of working age. And during communist China under Mao, the more they worked, it didn't necessarily lead to them earning more. But suddenly, the more they worked, the more they could earn for their families. And so this is called the eat bitter generation. They were extraordinarily hardworking. And so in factories, that meant asking for extra hours because it was the first time in their life where they could work more and change the lives of their families and also future generations. Now, the problem today is... A couple of things. First, you have that baby bust, which is unique to China and the one child policy, but you also have urbanization. Now, once you move into a city, kids just mean cost. And so I remember in 2015, when the one child policy was officially relaxed, the beginning of it, I was going around the country doing interviews in China, asking young parents or young prospective parents, you know, are you going to have a second kid? And the most consistent answer I got was... No, because a second child would make both children half as competitive. The amount that they were able to spend on their children in terms of education, the opportunities they were, they were able to give them would basically be cut in half. And competition is such a defining element of the project of childhood in China that these young parents basically made a business decision for their kids in order to try to give them the best chance possible of of really thriving into their future and young adulthood.
Zach Dykewald shares what he sees in common between the people of Mexico and China in just a minute on Travel with Rick Steves. His website is youngchinagroup.com. As the most populous country in the world, China also has the most young adults, around 700 million under the age of 40. Zach Dykewald operates the Young China Group to examine how the expectations of China's millennials and Gen Zers are substantially different from their parents. He's joining us on Travel with Rick Steves by a remote connection from his temporary headquarters in Mexico City. So your work at Young China Group is really designed to help prospective business connections between China and the rest of the world in both directions, I would imagine. In fact, you're in Mexico City right now working on a project to connect Mexican businesses with Chinese businesses. I know you have kind of a survey that you have with your clients, and you have sort of a a, a little cheat sheet that explains uh, uh, cultural factors that you really should be aware of. All of these developments really have an impact on anybody with a business interest in China. What are you finding this is the most important advice you can give somebody that wants to establish a relationship, a business relationship with China these days? It seems like there's an unpredictability that comes in here and a, and a lack of consistency or a volatile new dimension of China that would be bad news for business people. Well, the last three years, that lack of predictability has defined the business environment in China. You know, before 2020, when people would call me, they'd want to know about what are young people thinking, feeling, what do they want for their future? What keeps them up at night? What do they think is sexy? What is, you know, masculine and feminine mean in young China? So how does identity drive economic outcomes? And then the last three years, it's all been government. (laughs) And what's exciting right now and what we feel like we're on the precipice of once again is government beginning to take a step back? You know, Davos is yeah. happening right now. And from Liu He, which is a senior a senior government official within China, the news that he released at Davos was pretty clear that, hey, China is open for business again. So here's what I would say. I would say regardless of what business you're in, and even regardless of whether or not you're in the business of China, uh, whether or not you're traveling abroad to Southeast Asia or Europe, whether you're in the international movie business, or you're just taking your, your grandson or granddaughter to see a movie and wonder why Shanghai is as prominently featured as New York, China is an inevitability to a certain extent. And it will be impacting most every facet of our lives. And what troubles me when I, when I talk with some Americans in particular, uh, and I say this from, from a perch in Mexico and, and from doing this project, focusing on U.S.-China competition everywhere but the U.S. and China, is that we think it's really just the U.S. and China. And that competition with China is, is going to be about excluding the country from entering the United States. And, and that actually might unfold. There's real regulatory risk here. But what you're seeing in other countries around the world is that Chinese companies are increasingly making products that are more socioeconomically proximate, which is a very fancy way of saying people in China have a lot in common with people in Mexico in terms of what they need, how they use technology, how they access the internet, how they access credit, how they access debt. They have a lot in common with people in Indonesia, uh, throughout Southeast Asia, throughout India. And so there's this question of how do you make what the rest of the world wants? And there's an argument within China right now that if the government starts to take a back seat and allows more predictable economic environment, many of these Chinese companies can be quite competitive Maybe not in the United States, but in the 180, 190 other countries around the world. 
there could be a very large appetite for that what they have to is offer. very interesting because my whole understanding i'm a good capitalist you know my whole thing is find a need and fill it and i know what people want but my world is america and america is quite unusual on this planet china is a global thing and i've seen the impact of china in africa for example I've seen uh, emerging economies where there, everybody has a car, but it's a different kind of car than what I think you'd have. What would you say in a nutshell is that from a, a Chinese point of view, I guess, the difference between the material appetite of the United States, which is 300 million wealthy people, and the material appetite of India, which is a billion people with a with middle class as big as our entire population, I suppose, or Mexico, or Indonesia, which has the same population as the United States, but obviously catching up with us economically and not as affluent. What do Americans not understand about the material appetite of the other 96% of humanity? It's value-driven. And I can give you a really concrete example. So there's a great company in the United States right now who's trying to reinvent the EV market. No, it's not a certain eccentric Twitter CEO. Uh, It's this company called Rivian, who makes these beautiful, incredible... Uh, electric vehicles, pickups, and they're gorgeous. They're incredibly high powered. They're about 90 grand. My favorite Chinese EV company right now, and there are some high level competitors with companies like Rivian and Tesla, but it's a company called Wuling Xiaochua. And um, it's a $5,000 electric vehicle that for an Asian megacity uh, is perfect. It's small, it has limited range, but it's all that you need to commute and park in these 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 20 million person cities. And that car, and then the equivalent of that, so that phone, or that payment option, or that approach to the mobile internet that's coming out of China is a far better fit for places that are more socioeconomically similar yeah. to China versus the U.S., which is we're pretty unique in that we're, we're all pretty well off and, and you know we have to work a lot of jobs to feel middle class. But in reality, China is what's, what's called the world's middle class. They have a per capita GDP just over 10 grand, which is almost the same as Mexico and far more similar to Brazil, Peru, uh, Colombia, uh, other Latin American countries, and of course, Southeast Asian countries, than you know, the problems that people are trying to solve in San Francisco. And so this is a fundamental awareness that an American company that wants to interact efficiently and effectively with the global market, that, that's the shortcoming on our point because our global view is an American market which is absolutely small compared to the potential. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Zach Dykwald, and he is in Mexico City right now working on a project where he's connecting Mexican businesses with Chinese businesses. Zach, that's an interesting uh, tie-in of what we were just talking about. As you mentioned, the middle class from a global point of view is countries like Mexico, where the per capita income is probably, what, a sixth or a seventh of the United States. Uh, what are you doing in Mexico City and, and what do you hope to accomplish? So the first part of this project is, is just to understand. It came from this idea of working on understanding how Chinese companies go global and also how U.S.-China competition unfolds everywhere that's not the U.S. and China. And Mexico is a really interesting starting point uh, because from a consumer perspective, again, they're, they're quite socioeconomically proximate to folks in China But Mexico is so aligned to the United States, not just economically with NAFTA, but also in terms of security concerns. I mean, it's your next door neighbor. And one of the really interesting findings, and I've been interviewing a number of Chinese businesses, um, economists and manufacturers here in Mexico, is that 
China and Mexico used to be competitive. They both used to make intermediate goods. They were sort of at the same level in the value chain. But now since COVID uh, and, the, and the major global supply chain crisis, as well as a number of onerous regulatory shifts towards China from the United States, what you're starting to see now is, is Mexico and China, instead of being competitors, they're collaborators. Hmm. You're seeing Chinese manufacturers investing in Mexican manufacturers so they could sell into the United States. And Mexico is going to be a major beneficiary of the nearshoring, friendshoring theme that's really defined the COVID era as people are trying to figure out, okay, where are we going to make stuff now? And China, they don't want to be blocked out of the U.S. It's still the biggest, you know, it's still the biggest marketplace in the world. So they're sort of finding ways to sneak into Mexico and other places to try to earn the dollar as business becomes harder. So as China struggles to fine-tune its approach to the world and the global economy and, and the demographic changes and all of that, we're also dealing with a different reality in China as it comes out of COVID. What, what is the post-COVID kind of reality for the younger generation now? How has that changed their take on life and their aspirations? So it's a little bit like post-financial crisis U.S., before the financial crisis, you know, everyone was pie in the sky. I'm going to go to college. I'm going to get a great job. The things that I do will deliver pretty predictable results. COVID has had a similar effect on this young generation in that all of the optimism that was felt for the decade leading up to 2020 has had a major damper put on it. And the job market is not nearly as frothy as it was before. Mm-hmm. And tech companies, instead of hiring, are laying off. And you actually have 20% youth unemployment right now in China, which is brutally bad. And so this young generation has become far more pragmatic. They've become far more measured in their optimism. They still have confidence in the government to, to find a route and navigate these issues that have come up through really nine months of kind of rogue wave problems with, with COVID and, of course, with Russia and lockdowns being, being pretty heinously mismanaged and But the optimism that was felt pre-COVID, there's a major asterisk next to it now. So I would be expecting a huge amount of messaging on not just economy. Like when we look at China from the outside, we think about the economy, right? Because that's how it impacts us. That's how it impacts the stock market, whatever. In China, the verbiage is far more about jobs. How do we create good jobs for, for young people so that that sense of optimism and hope can return? Zach Dykewald is the author of Young China, How the Restless Generation Will Change Their Country and the World. He's our guest on Travel with Rick Steves before getting back to China for the first time since the pandemic. Hey, Zach, I want to finish by talking about travel. I know when I was in Europe, uh, you know, checking the post-COVID sort of economics and and, uh, tourism industry, the big thing is tourism is back except for China. I think China's coming out of COVID now a little later than other countries, but boy, when China has a trend, when you talk about a billion point four people, that can inundate tourism in different parts of the world. What's going on with travel in China right now and what do you see in the near future? So before COVID, I did a lot of work with the travel community, both in the United States and, and Europe and, and even Southeast Asia. And so the headline is this. For me, it's much less a question of what, which is an enormous Chinese outbound travel boom and really a question of when. We have the first testing of China's new outbound COVID policies right now. There's a certain sort of half open, half not in terms of what the Chinese outbound traveler can do. But domestically within China, 
you have domestic travel for, for Chinese New Year at about 90% of what it was pre-COVID, which is pretty good. So I got a number for you, Rick. In, in 2019, China was the largest outbound tourism spender in the world. Number one, surpassed the United States. Only 10% of the population had a passport. 10% compared to 40% in the United States and 90 plus percent in most of Europe. That 10% was expected to double by 2025. Now that number is like 2027, 28, which means another 140 million people hitting the road. Well, you know, if 10% of China has a passport, that's probably twice as many as Americans who have a passport. 10% of China having a passport is almost two times the population of Germany. There you go. So we've got a huge potential of influx in tourism, which is something that societies all over the planet, I think, are salivating on because that's a lot of money, a lot of employment. Uh, and it all depends on how able and eager the people in China are to get out and use their passports. No doubt about it. And, you know, when, you, when you're closed down for three years, what matters kind of rises to the surface. And sure, luxury spending is cool. And yes, eating out is important, uh, really important in China. The want to travel and see the world has been one of the most persistent and really dogged passions that people have within China. Uh, I think it's part of what I love about China, honestly, is that people really do want to be exposed to different ideas, cultures, feelings, tastes, smells, cities, what have you. And so I really expect about midway through this next year, we're going to be back in business again. And it's, it's a mixed blessing, by the way. It's a disruptive force for mm -hmm. good and, and with some challenges, which is where a lot of the work I was doing in tourism came from. But it certainly is a great opportunity for these small economies. I would imagine it's it's more and more a requirement of an authoritarian government to allow their people to travel in order for that government to stay in power. I know uh, in recent years, the Russians will say the reason they, they favor and support Putin was because under Putin, they could travel. And they really valued that even more than, than some other freedoms. And I think China's going to be reckoning with that appetite that people have, especially in this global age when everybody sees everybody at the World Cup or, or everybody can see everybody on social media and, and there is that appetite to get out. Zach, it is so great to catch up with you. I would like just to close it off by asking if I was a, a businessman coming to you for advice to should I engage with China, what's, what's your take on China's future today Compared with the take you would have had the last time we talked a, a few years ago, how has it changed? Today, you have to have a stronger sense of the regulatory pressures in China than you probably felt in 2019, 2018. So to me, the size of China's market, the scale of its global impact in travel and luxury and, and a number of different markets means that you have to be involved in China to a certain extent. Uh, because over the next decade, not only are you thinking about the Chinese market, but you're also thinking about Chinese competitors, uh, these businesses who are growing strong within China and will be going global. So I think there has to be involvement. And now it's less of that pie in the sky, unadulterated optimism that, that really persisted in the 2010s. Now it takes smarts. It takes the ability to navigate and a more measured approach to untapping that market and competing on the world stage with increasingly strong Chinese competitors. And I know it's a kind of almost a ridiculous question because there's no way to know, but everybody must be wondering how long will the authoritarian government in China be able to maintain this lock that they have on what will soon be, a, well, nearly a billion and a half people. In the short term, in, in the midterm, in the long term, 
Is it going to be status quo when you get right down to it? Or do you think there's a big change coming when it comes to freedom in China? I don't expect there's a big change coming. And, and this is usually my most disappointing answer to American listeners. The, the thing I would leave you with is it's not enough for the system in China to, to be dysfunctional. There has to be a high-functioning, enviable alternative. And that part's important. And, and particularly for people within China, uh, when they look out at the world, there isn't a system, and, and this comes with a grain of salt, of course, that they think they would prefer and can deliver more hope, more optimism, more growth, more jobs than the system they currently have at this particular juncture. A couple of years from now, we can check back in and, and yeah. see, how this, uh, see how this holds. Well, they're, they're looking out at the world, but they've also got a long history, a long heritage. And I would think that has a lot to do with their inertia. I love the way you refer to different wise phrases from ancient Chinese lore. Is, is there one sort of phrase that seems appropriate to you now when you sort out the complicated world of, of China as it relates to the rest of the world? There's two that, that come to mind. Uh, the first is uh, which means that the, the official translation, I think, is man plans, God laughs. Um, basically, all of our plans these last few years, and all of China's plans, by the way, there's, there's no country or there's no government that has had their plans more confounded than China in a lot of ways. Uh, and the other one is, is from Deng Xiaoping, uh, allegedly, in the early 1990s, which is It means crossing the river by feeling the stones, which is a beautiful way of saying that we don't really know how we're, how we're navigating this thing. We're feeling the, the earth and the options underfoot as we go. We're expecting to have to adapt, adjust as we navigate the turbulent waters of, of time and, and history and modernity. But we do have a sense of where the destination is, uh, which is getting across that river towards a more prosperous nation, a more stable nation with a, with a better life for our, our, ourselves and our families. Wow. <laughs> Those are so great. <laughs> Man plans, God laughs. I think we can all, <laughs> we can all put that, tuck that away and read it every once in a while. Zach Dykewald, thank you so much. Best wishes with your work with Young China Group, and let's talk again soon. And uh, congratulations on what sounds like a, a wonderful, wonderful new beginning you have in your life with your wife, uh, your COVID partner, and now you're going back to Chengdu and... and uh, establish yourself better with a partner in China. I'm looking forward to it, Rick. Thanks so much for having me. As always, it's always been a blast. Take care. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Kazimura Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Our theme music was written and performed by Jerry Frank. Affiliate relations are by Sheila Gerzoff. There's more at ricksteves.com slash radio. I've found that if you equip yourself with good information and expect yourself to travel smart, you can. And that's why the Rick Steves Guidebooks are consistently the best-selling series of guides to Europe. Pick up the latest edition at your favorite bookseller or at ricksteves.com.